Tonight we're looking at the book of Nahum. And I've been doing something every week, um, giving you all a little bit of Old Testament history. And I've been giving that to you because I've read and reread the Lord of the Rings several times, and I can pick up the Lord of the Rings, and I can turn to a chapter, and I can read that chapter and enjoy it because, you know what, I really like the chapter where Samwise Gamgee is in the Orc Tower, and they think he's a great elvish warrior because he's on this fierce rampage. And I know the context of that story. I know what happens before and afterwards, so I can pick it up and read that chapter. Um, But if I was not at all familiar with the Lord of the Rings, and I picked it up and opened it up to a page and read to you five sentences and then said, now let's talk about what that story is about, we would have no idea what was going on. And so the reason I've been giving you Old Testament history is because what the prophets were, the people who spoke God's Word to God's people, weren't preachers, they weren't pastors, they were people who had a very unique office where they spoke and when the words came out of their mouth, it was the Word of God through them. And they spoke in a peculiar time. Again, I'm going to give you the little map that hopefully doesn't make you feel like you're in class. But um, Nahum is speaking in the uh, 7th century, like between 660 and 640. And what's happened, what we followed, I'm going to give you like super brief overview. I'm going to give you 700 years of Israel's history in like 45 seconds, so pay attention. Um, Actually, I'm going way back. I'm going back to creation. God created a world. Um, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Very early on in Genesis, in Genesis 12, uh, God called this guy Abraham. And what happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden is sin in the world and the world got frustrated. Everybody agrees, things aren't right in this world. Doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. Things aren't right. We all agree to that. Well, according to scriptures, because sin entered into the world, in Genesis 12, early on in the story, God calls this guy named Abram. And he calls Abram out of his land. He was an idol worshiper. He didn't know who God was, but God spoke to him and said, I'm going to start my mission organization for fixing the world with you. And so he calls this idol worshiper, Abram, out of his land. He says, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world. And what Abram was, who God ended up giving him the name Abraham that we know, is Abraham was the person who, with, in a lot of ways, God said, with you, I'm starting my work of fixing the world. And so his promise was, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. And so as the book of Genesis goes on, Abraham's people, his family, becomes a great nation. At a certain point in time in the book of Genesis, there's a famine in the land, and his people move, I don't know how to draw Egypt, but I know it's over in this direction. Um, They move to Egypt because there's a famine in the land, they have no food, and they um, come to Egypt. Over several hundred years, the nation of Israel, the, the mission organization God sent into the world to fix the world... Um, was actually eventually enslaved by the Egyptians. In 1440, God sent his servant Moses. We've heard the name Moses. um, And said, I'm going to use you. You're going to be the tool that I use to deliver my people from Egypt. And so Moses, you know, on Easter, they show the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Is that already too dated? Y'all not familiar with this? I don't know why they show it on Easter. But, uh, (laughs) anyways, that's another story. Um, Moses comes down here through all these miraculous events, these crazy plagues, and eventually through actually the killing of the firstborn of every person in Egypt, um, Israel is delivered out of slavery. 
and they're moving towards the promised land. And during the time they're moving toward the promised land, they fall into sin. And God says, I have to wait 40 years for you to get into the promised land. He's withholding his promise because of their sin. And eventually they get to the promised land. So this event is commonly called the Exodus. And this was the formative event for what it meant to be an Israelite. Their identity as a people was in this particular saving act of how God delivered a whole nation out of slavery into the promised land, which we commonly call Israel. And so they got up here, and over a period of years, God set up this institution called Judges. That's where we get the book of Judges. And the judges ruled Israel judicially. At one point, Israel said, we want a king. And so God sent them this king, Saul. Saul reigns for 40 years. David reigns for 40 years. Solomon reigns for 40 years. Solomon's reign ends in 930. In 930, Solomon's son, this is Jerusalem right here, comes to the throne, not a good king. There are 12 tribes that make up Israel. Ten of the tribes leave. And two tribes are left down here. And so this institution, this mechanism that's supposed to be God's plan for the means by which he blesses the world, where he gives all of his law and all of these beautiful pictures of the way he's saving the world, is starting, this is kind of where we start to see cracks um, in what's going on. What we've seen so far is, so that's like 930. In the next 200 years, Assyria comes in and just, boom, wipes out Israel. And that's what we've studied so far is the minor prophets in which God came to Israel and said, you've fallen in sin, you've left me. And he's calls and repentance, and he calls and repentance and talks about a steadfast love. And Assyria becomes his tool for judgment on Israel. And since then... We, we got to 701 last week. Don't worry, y'all. I'm not going to do this all the time, but I just want to give a summary overview. Um, Assyria has swept across the whole Middle East. They're sieging Jerusalem. In 701, 185,000 Assyrians are killed in one day because God delivers Jerusalem from the siege. And the, cat, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is actually killed by his own people in his palace. And so God delivers Judah from this Assyrian threat but nonetheless, Assyria is still powerful, and actually in the, in the preceding years from 701 up until Nahum's prophecy, which is between 660 and 640, don't have to pay attention to the dates, Assyria sweeps across the whole Middle East, and Assyria owns everything. And they're all the way around Jerusalem. Jerusalem's getting, uh, Judah's getting crunched in, and, uh, and, and Judah's the last holdout. And they're paying tribute to Assyria, but they haven't actually been demolished like the other countries. And so that's where the book of Nahum is today. And we have, to re- we have to read it in that context because it's a prophecy that Nahum is giving to Judah in the context of the whole world being taken over by Assyria. And this plan that started with Abraham that where God was going to fix the world, Assyria, ten of the tribes got destroyed, there's two left, and things are looking bleak. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, we are supposed to be this great nation. We're supposed to be this mechanism by which God blessed the world and everything feels like it's at stake right now. There were 12 tribes. There's two left. We're paying tribute. It's only a matter of time. This is the book of Nahum. To the people in Judah. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, 
Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, the you here is actually addressing Judah, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. This Lord, uh, The Lord has given this commandment about you. The you here is actually a different pronoun. It's actually referring to Assyria now. The Lord has given this commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. <clears throat> from the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I pray that it would we would find that it has deep meaning for us today, dear God. That um, when it feels like everything is at stake, dear Lord, And when it feels like we have no control, there's comfort, there's confidence we can have in you in your passionate pursuit of justice and peace. Dear Lord, please teach us, please teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I've recently been turned on to a new podcast called Radio Lab that Ryan Reich is now enjoying and I'm glad to hear. And um, in this podcast, I was listening to this episode. They just take things like mortality, immorality, choice, deception, and they examine a lot of psychological experiments about just these general ideas. And so I was listening to one where they said, today we're just going to examine choice. It's put on by NPR up in New York City. And um, they had some really interesting psychological experiences in the, uh, experiments. And the most interesting one was this guy, psychology professor at Yale. His name's John Barge, had this experiment. He had someone go down and kind of stand in people traffic um, uh, on campus and in the community and, and get people to take a one-question survey. And the person who was giving the survey had a bundle of things in his hand, and he always had a cup of coffee. And the survey was they had a picture and a description of the most average, neutral-looking and sounding guy named Joe. And the survey was, how do you feel about Joe? What do you, or it, sometimes it was, do you like Joe? Or it was, can you rate Joe 1 to 10? And it was a picture of the most nondescript neutral person, and then actually a short description. It was a picture of him and a short description, and it was just the most average-looking person. And so they got results. But what the people didn't know is the primary point of the experiment, or what the really kind of turning point was, the person who had all the stuff in their hand that was uh, taking the survey always had a cup of coffee. Uh, and, and what he would do is, when he would ask him the question, he would say, hold on for a second. He'd put his stuff down, and he'd hand the, he'd say, can you hold my coffee? And he'd hand the person coffee, put his stuff down, take the coffee back, and ask him the question. And to half the people, he would hand them a hot cup of coffee. And then to the other half of the people, he would hand them a cold cup of coffee. 
And what they found in this, um, in this survey and in this experiment is overwhelmingly the people who held for no more than three or four seconds the hot cup of coffee liked Joe. And overwhelmingly the people who for three to five, three or four seconds held the cold cup of coffee of iced coffee disliked Joe. They had negative feelings toward Joe. <laughs> and if you're like me, when you first hear that, you're like a little bit skeptical. But when you do it, the fact that well, this survey actually happened and these results actually were actually pretty clear, it's a little bit, if you're like me, it's a little bit unnerving. Because what it says all of a sudden is like, I might not even be in control of my own choices. Like, I might dislike or like somebody according to the, the, their theory was, what happened was the concept of warmth got mistranslated in people's brains, so they associate the temperature warmth with the personality trait of being warm and liked Joe. And they had several experiments like this where people made choices and because they were actually primed through this other indicator. Another thing they did was they had people play word games in a room and they had a set a control group where they played this regular word game and then they had another control group and in this word game they used the words bingo, wrinkle, and Florida. And just common conversation, they didn't stand out. And this is what they noticed. The people who were in the word games where the words bingo, wrinkle, and Florida were used, walked out of the room slower. (laughs) Again, if you're like me, it's kind of nonsense, and then it's kind of unnerving because it kind of reveals how little control we actually have. And to kind of bring it home, um, y'all still enjoying that? I liked it. Radio Lab, check it out. But I say that to actually talk about... um, we really live under the delusion that we have control. And those experiments are actually, when you really grapple with them, they're unnerving because they reveal how little control we have. We don't even have control over our own choices in a lot of ways. Elizabeth and I, when we went to seminary, started uh, summer of 2004. Our plan in the summer of 2004 was by winter of 2006, we were going to start trying to have our first child. <laughs> and within 20 months, we had four. Um, all that to say we're all mapping out plans for our lives we all think that we have some semblance of control and we thought we were going to have one kid in our first five years of marriage and God gave us four kids in the first four years of marriage and it's a perfect glorious picture of how Elizabeth and I don't have control and we really want to believe that we're in charge of our life and what being charged looks like in today's environment um, you know is omnipresent OCD, we all kind of joke about how we're all kind of OCD, but what it looks like is you're mapping out your future right now. You have this picture of what your future life is. You're doing all the right things. You're making the right grades. You're relating to the right people. Um, and, and, and it's the way you're in charge of your life. And when things come undone, things that are out of your control, when it's finally revealed to you, you can't map out your future, we come unhinged, right? The grades don't pan out the way they are. The job doesn't work out the way it is. I don't know what it is for you. But those events you can't control, you come unhinged. And what that reveals is we're holding on so tight to this idea that we're controlling everything. Relationships. Relationships are hard. They're utterly uncontrollable because it's the place where you bind yourself to someone else and all of a sudden they have input in your life. And so we try to manage our relationships and people-pleasing is really our way of trying to manage relationships and make sure everybody's happy. And then when people aren't happy with us, we come undone because we thought we could kind of control and manage and make everything work. Um, you know, we try to manage and feel like we have control in Christianity. And so what we try to do is we do the easy things, like quiet times. I can convince myself I'm a good Christian if I have enough quiet times. Well, it's easy to get in the morning and read your Bible. 
It's really hard and it's really messy and it feels really out of control to love on difficult people, which is really what Jesus wants from us. Being in charge looks like being overdone and overwhelmed and OCD, but it also, I think, at the same time, laziness is another asp- is another way we pursue control because if OCD is I want to just take hold of everything and control it, laziness is, you know what? I can't have control of that, so I'm going to step away from responsibility. If I don't do anything, I actually have control. I can't fail. And so in a lot of ways, the ways we approach responsibility and the way we run from responsibility are really us trying to have trying to believe in this notion that we're in charge of our life. Mark Dever, pastor, said it this way, the world you think you're in charge of doesn't exist. The world you think you're in charge of doesn't exist. And you might say, no, 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 I'm doing really well. Like, I've got my life mapped out, and I'm completely secure in that. And it's really okay. I mean, I really am doing well. I get that y'all have problems. And I'm here to say, like, no, 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 you don't have control. You don't have control. I don't know what tomorrow brings for you. I don't know if you're going to find out your mom's bipolar or your dad's going to have a stroke or you're going to have breast cancer or you're going to have a car accident. You're not in control. You're not in charge. You think you are because we all think we are because we all want that delusion of control. But one of the great things about this kind of generation of young people is y'all value authenticity above everything else. This is why we hate cheesy church programs because we see them as inauthentic, right? Yes? No? Yeah? We see the inauthenticity of our parents' generation and we rebel against it. Okay, if you're walking in here and you think your life is in control and you're in charge, we all see that it's not and our lives are out of control and it's okay, this is a safe place for you to finally tell somebody it's out of control. It's okay for you to peek out from, be- from behind your facade of strength for a minute or two and consider really what this text is talking about. And so if you're in charge, this text really hits us upside the head and says, no, you're not, you're not. And if you don't deal with that now, then at some point in your life, the ultimate loss of control is imminent. At some point in your life, death is going to force you to deal with the fact that all of your in-chargeness means nothing. But if you're out of control, like Judah felt at this time, if you're overwhelmed, if you're grasping for security, and you're grasping for control, and life is just throwing you everywhere, this text is sweet. Because this text reveals to us that God is in control and God is in charge. And there is sweet, sweet comfort and peace to be had in that. There's sweet security in that. And you see, that's where Judah was. And in this text, we see that there's comfort, there's security, there's certainty in the Lord because of His sovereign pursuit of justice and because of His sovereign pursuit of peace. The Lord is in control. In this text, we see that He is in control. He is sovereignly pursuing justice and he's sovereignly pursuing peace. First, there's comfort to be had in his sovereign pursuit of justice. See, at this time, like we said, Judah's on the brink. The Old Testament plan feels like it's fixing to collapse. God was supposed to fix the world through Israel, and now it's dwindled into these tiny little two tribes that are paying tribute to Assyria that are the last dwindling nation that Assyria hasn't destroyed yet. And what this book is about is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Syria. And what this book is prophesying about, written between 660 and 640, is in 612, the tables are going to be reversed in the Middle East. And Nineveh, the stronghold with the massive walls that are three chariots wide and the moat 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep, the biggest metropolitan stronghold in the Middle East is going to be wiped off the map 
to the degree that it's going to take 2,000 years to find it again. What Nahum has come to tell the people of Judah is it looks bleak, but the Lord is in control. He's sovereignly pursuing justice and he's sovereignly pursuing peace. So first uh, verse, verse two, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful and takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Again, this is a prophecy given to Judah at this time. This is for Judah. This is not actually for Assyria. And what the text first tells us is he's a jealous and avenging God. He is, his jealousy is his zeal for his honor, his zeal for righteousness, for holiness, for things to be right. For it, it's, it's his zeal that that redemptive plan will take root and will save the world, to bless the people and bless the world, that the king will sit on the throne for eternity. His jealousy is not the jealousy, when we look at the Old Testament, we think of like, oh, when it talks about the jealous God, we think of him as like cranky old mean person. His jealousy is a zeal for good things. Love means hating the destruction of that which was supposed to be beautiful. Jesus has a, God has a, an incredible zeal to restore this world to beauty. And his jealousy just drives him to vengeance. We see that word, the same word vengeance, thrown up three times in, the, uh, in that verse. And that's one of the ways, again, in Hebrew literature, it's highlighted. He's the Lord of vengeance. And it's vengeance that's birthed from a perfect love for what is good and what is upright. You see, we all feel, we feel vengeful all the time. When our, we, and we feel it when our agendas and our identities are threatened. We feel sinned against in our personal squabbles. And this instinct arises in all of us, but in us, it's corrupted by our desire for self-love and self-protection. Well, in God, it's perfect, holy vengeance because He's perfectly holy. And so His vengeance is horrible, but it's sweet because, it's, because His justice is the pursuit of pure beauty and holiness. Not just for himself, but for all of creation. See, the good news is that in all his power, in his pursuit of justice, the next verse tells us he's still slow to anger. He is still patient. It's a reminder, verse 3 is a reminder of two things, that God has great patience in exacting his justice. And unlike us, who we lash out when we feel those moments of vengeance, he's still slow to anger. And yet at the same time, verse 3 ends with, or also says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So he is patient, yet he still pursues his justice. And 3b is um, the picture of the mysteriousness of his sovereignty. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will by no means clear the, the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And what Nahum's evoking is images of, like, of weather patterns. He's saying, just like they're mysterious, you know what, sometimes the way God's working on his plan for salvation... It's mysterious. We don't understand it. The whirlwinds and the storms and the clouds, we can't really predict. And that's what God's sovereignty looks like because right now it looks bleak. But he's affirming and saying, I'm in control. You might not understand it, but I'm in control. And so the text continues to go. Um, verse five, verses 4 and 5, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. This is God again showing His power over creation. Showing that His control is absolute. Verses 4 and 5 are actually probably a reference to the Exodus event when Israelites actually crossed over um, the Red Sea on dry ground. And even later, when they entered into Israel and they crossed over the Jordan River on um, dry ground, um, 
So verse 4 is kind of that. He rebukes the sea and he makes it dries and he dries up all the rivers. When God is executing his plan to save a people, he dries up rivers and seas. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. That He's referring to the fertile land that Assyria relies on for their agriculture, which is their primary business because that's what everybody relied on. And he's saying, I control their economy. I control their economy. And then verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is God's strong affirmation again that he is sovereignly pursuing his justice and he has the power to do it. And in the midst of this description of God's sovereign pursuit of justice, verse 7 is the comfort for God's people. The Lord is good. He's saying all this to say that the Lord is good. And the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. You see, God's pursuit of justice is not a terror to His people. It's a comfort in the junk of life. In Judah, when it all seems to be on the line, the Lord's justice is not a terror. It is a comfort to those that are in Him. A couple of points of application about that. There are two ways that you can seek comfort in, through the form of justice. There's two ways you seek comfort through justice. The first is you can seek your own brand of justice, and this is what we do day to day. We all have our own brand of justice that we're seeking, our notions of what's right or wrong in our life and what the appropriate responses are. And all you have to do to figure out the way you think about justice is just think about the last time you got irritated with somebody, last time you got frustrated with somebody, and they didn't understand what you were saying, and you were completely right. Right? Everybody got that? Close your eyes. Think about it for a second. Just kidding. Close your eyes. That last time you got angry at somebody, that's it. That's your brand of justice. And you remember, you know, whether it's, uh, you remember that righteous indignation you felt because you're like, you know, you don't understand. You don't know how right I am on this. And you really are wrong on this. That righteous indignation, indignation you feel when you disagree with somebody. And you're like, really right. Okay, here's what you got to deal with. That other person who was really adamant about their right felt the same way. They felt just as right as you felt. You getting this? We all think, no, 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 I know what you're saying, but you don't understand. I was really right. Okay, that's how they feel right now. Some of y'all are actually thinking that about each other right now in this room, right? Elizabeth and I are definitely thinking about each other. No, they felt just as right as you do. You see... All of humanity innately agrees that right and wrong has to exist. And we're all meeting out our own definitions of justice on each other. And so we all agree that it has to exist. But what we've, as a people group, all of humanity throughout all of history has universally failed to do is, well, then what is that standard? Because we all got our individual standard that we're crushing each other with every single day. Why? It's because this. We all live in our own little kingdoms and we pursue our own self-oriented, self-protecting code of justice and so we get angry or passive-aggressive or whatever it is so that we can have comfort and security that our little form of justice provides. Like, my world's perfect. Don't interrupt it. These are the rules of my world and we're all trying to live in that delusion of control. When people come in and mess it up, they're wrong. They're wrong because it doesn't fit into my kingdom. And what that does is it leaves us unhappy and bitter because we want to be in charge but we're never really in charge. Nobody's listening to our values and we're powerless to actually make justice happen. We also become petty. We actually get up petty. We get upset about little things because we refuse to deal with the reality that we don't have control in life 
And so in tiny little petty parts of life, we choose to grab control really tightly right there. The way one writer said it, it says, we fight for things of little value and forget things of transcendent value. You know, you feel like, look at, look at your instincts. You feel most inflamed with justice when you disagree with the penalty that a referee is giving you, right? Yeah, I know this is happening in our group. Like, justice just comes up, like, oh my gosh, and you get inflamed with this sense of righteousness when the ref made the wrong call, right? But when you see somebody on the street tonight who's sleeping in 30-degree weather, do you have a sense of justice that flames up then? It's a perfect picture of the way that we're trying to retain control in our tiny kingdom and have no vision for the larger kingdom of which God is in control. So we get petty, we're, we're unhappy, bitter, we're petty, and lastly, we're insecure because ultimately we lack the power to execute our own little brand of justice. And even if we did, it would only be self-oriented, small-minded, navel-gazing, self-concerned brand of justice. And that can't fix the world. And if we can, just for a second, look outside of ourselves, we'll see a whole world of people doing the same thing because we're all doing that. All living in our own little universe. So what are we supposed to do? You see, Nahum is depicting a brand of justice that we desperately need. And the book of Nahum is here to say, God is the sinner and God is executing His plan of redemption and He is bringing justice, not you. He is the sinner of the world, not you. He is destroying evil. And that is good. We should be comforted by that. The enemies of God, an enemy who, by the way, if you remember the first week of large group, we actually talked about Jonah. A hundred years ago, heard the gospel preached and several people in uh, Nineveh repented. But of course, we've, we've seen countries leave the gospel within a hundred years. So this is not just any enemy. This is people who knew the gospel and who rebelled and they oppressed the people of God and they've loved and they've pursued evil. And God's saying they will be destroyed. You see, when we stop trying to control the world and we stop trying to exact justice on everyone around us in our pursuit of our own little self-made kingdom and then we make God and His kingdom our refuge, instead of being unhappy and bitter, we are comforted. Because the Lord sovereignly pursues His justice and He does succeed. When you feel most out of control, God's still in control. Instead of being petty, we start to have true eyes and true hearts for the kingdom of God. Instead of being completely consumed by petty things in life all the time, we look up and we see a larger kingdom with consequences for all of creation and we can seek to serve that kingdom instead of a little petty one. And instead of insecurity we get to weather the true and painful and dark difficulties of life with perfect security. With a living knowledge that behind every hard relational pain that you go through in life, the hardships, the injustices, the junk in our life, the Lord is sovereign and the Lord is just. And there's security to be had in that. The Lord is in control. When the circumstances of our life are out of control and you realize that you're not in charge and you don't have control, The Lord is in control and He's pursuing justice. This is Nahum's message to Judah. They were on the brink of disaster. And he was saying, the Lord is executing justice. He is in control. He's not just executing justice. He's also pursuing peace. We have comfort because of His sovereign pursuit of justice, but also His sovereign pursuit of peace. In Judah, the circumstances were dire. And yet, Nahum ends this first chapter with actually reference to Isaiah 52, 7. 
Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. So keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Again, this prophecy is not to Assyria, it's to Judah. And this verse reaffirms the good news of God's plan for restoring the world to peace. And it's not just peace. When we read that term peace, it's this rich Hebrew term shalom. It's a loaded term. It doesn't just mean peace the way we think of it, like the absence of conflict. It's the absence of conflict and it is the abundance of life. It is rich and restored reconciliation in our relationships. It is creation made to be what it's supposed to be. Our bodies finally are what they're supposed to be. Everything made new and not just new, not just neutral, all the bad done away with, but made so much more beautiful than it was ever supposed to be. What he's talking about is that kind of peace. God's plan of redemption is bringing that kind of peace. The world gets made better. When you come to RUF, when you come to church, when you come to Scripture, people, some people talk about, leave your stuff at the door. Don't. When you hear about the promise of Shalom, bring all your stuff. Bring all your stuff. Bring all your messy junk, all the things that have done to you, all the things you hate about yourself, whatever it is, all the stuff about this world that tears you up. And hear this promise that God is publishing peace. He is bringing peace in the world. He is bringing shalom. Bring all your dirty stuff and see that God is fixing it all. God is fixing it all. It was never supposed to be like this. And God is bringing shalom. He's making it what it was supposed to be. And we can't comprehend how beautiful that is. The promise of shalom doesn't just erase the bad, but it beautifies and enriches and secures the good in our relationships with God, with man, with work, with art, with all of creation. It's all made new. And so our petty attempts, in a lot of ways, our petty attempts at control are really our hearts crying for shalom. Those petty attempts to try to control everything in our world and give it peace that fail, utterly fail, is our heart showing that we were made for something more that we were made for this kind of peace. And if you keep trying to pretend that you're in charge and you, if you just work hard enough and you get angry enough to manifest the security that you want to give yourself, you're missing out on so much more that God has in store. Verse 15, like I said, is quoting Isaiah 52. This is Isaiah 52, 4-7. For thus says the Lord my God, My people went down at first into Egypt and sojourned there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is in control. And the good news, y'all, is that we're not in control. That the Lord reigns, that He's making all things new again. God demonstrates His sovereignty even when He submits His Son to the cross. Because you see, that's the place where He truly establishes peace. That's where this moment, what happens in Old Testament history, is you know what? In 586, this other country over here, Babylon, comes over and does what Assyria does. And guess what? Judah's wiped out too. And it looks done. And there's this tiny family that's preserving what they call the line of David. This tiny Davidic kingly family that's still living in 500, 586 years after Judah has wiped off the map, 
this guy starts walking around Palestine and starts telling people, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he starts telling people, I'm the son of God and I've come to save the world. And so, you see, things get more bleak before they get better. But God is establishing peace and he is in control. Jesus, when he was talking to Pilate, Pilate's one of the officials that oversaw the crucifixion. Jesus has been arrested. He's talking to Pilate in John 18. Pilate entered his headquarters and called to Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Pilate was not Jewish. Um, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did the others tell it to you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not, deli- that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come to the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate went again to Jesus and said, Where are you from? This is John 19. Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus says this, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. See, things get more bleak for the people of Israel. They get to bleak to the point where this guy who comes and finally says, I'm the king through which God's going to restore the world. And they looked and they wanted him to be this geopolitical ruler that was going to take Israel all over the globe. This is what he does. He walks around for a while, hangs out with sinners and tax collectors, heals some really sick people that are, would gross all of us out if they were in this room. And then his people start throwing rocks at him, can't stand him and have him killed. And God is in control. And it's actually through that mechanism he's establishing peace in the world because what he did at the cross was he took all the sin and evil that wasn't supposed to be in our lives and he bared the penalty for anybody who had come to faith in him. And then three days later he rose out of the grave and he said, and you're also going to have new life in me. And that's why death doesn't remove peace from Christians. It's because we have resurrection life in Jesus as well. It is not the final... (laughs) If you're trying to claim control in your life, death is going to be the thing that says, you know what, you're not in charge anymore. For the Christian, when we get to that moment, and that moment will be dark, and maybe we've encountered our parents' life or our grandparents' life, for the Christian, Jesus says, I bear, bore the sins, I bore the penalty for your sins, and also in me you have new life. And that's where the point of recreation and the renewal of all things starts, right there in the resurrection of Jesus. The Lord is restoring peace in the world. That is, the, that is the point where shalom gets restored, where all this junk in our life starts getting fixed. This is what it means, real short application. God is in control when your roommate situation falls apart. There is peace and good news in the fact that Jesus reigns. God is in charge when your parents lose, your job, lose their job, when your parents get sick, when you get sick. There is peace and good news that everything's going to be made new again. God is in control when your schoolwork falls apart. God is in control when things are unfair, when life is crashing down. These things don't happen outside of God's sovereignty. If your life is falling apart, I beg you, go to Scripture. Renew your mind. Renew your heart with the promises, in, with the promises of God and stand firm on the fact that God is in control. The verse actually ends in a really peculiar way. Behold upon the mountains at the feet of Him who brings... Um, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. 
the verse, uh, it ends later on, but the verse says, keep your feast, O Judah, remember your vows. He's actually telling them, hey, remember those rituals last week that we totally ripped on that I actually was saying the right thing? This is going to sound confusing for a second. He's actually saying, go do those things. Go keep those feasts. God gave them feasts in the Old Testament because what he did, what the feasts were is after they got delivered out of slavery for Egypt, he said, listen, I want you to have a feast. I want you to have three feasts a year. One's called Passover, one's called Pentecost, one is called the Feast of the Booth. And what those feasts are are ways that I'm going to remind you that I delivered you out of slavery because I want you to constantly be reminded of my salvation and my sovereignty and my work of salvation. And so when Judah's on the brink, one of the things God says is, go make sure you have your feasts. Make sure you're constantly reminding each other of my sovereign saving work. I've orchestrated ways to remind you of those things. So this is the application for the book of Nahum. This is it. Go to church. This is really it. Go to church. Take communion. Read your Bible. Sign up for all your small groups. Seriously, these are really the applications. But like I said last week, and just like Mike said, don't waste your time with those things if you're trying to give something back to God out of guilt. Do those things so that you can be reminded of what He gives you. Because that's what they are. That there's comfort because he is sovereignly executing justice and he is sovereignly bringing peace. Let's pray.